This is a Podcast 225 production. The issues. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? The people. Carl Dabity. We've got Michael Shingle, Taylor Moore, Jay Darden, Congressman Garrett Gray, Richard Condon. He is Ryan Clark. Sharon Weston Broom. The podcast. And we're going to talk about that. This is the Clay Young Show. Wow. Man, in the Baton Rouge area, it has been an interesting time. How are you, folks? Welcome back to the Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com. Some of you may have noticed that there was a little bit of delay between our last episode, episode 209, and this one. That is because of yours truly taking a few days off to recharge the batteries. Got to do that every now and again. And I just got away to an undisclosed location and tried as hard as I could to avoid news, social media, and all of that stuff. Of course, that was a little bit difficult because back in my town here in Baton Rouge, all hell was breaking loose after a press conference held by the Baton Rouge police chief, and I will get to my thoughts not only on the police chief's press conference, but some of the aftermath about it. And don't worry, I'm going to be brief about that because it seems so many other people talking about it has been long-winded, have been long-winded enough for all of us, and so I'll just just get in and out of it. After our interview this morning, or, or as you're listening, whenever you're listening, it's morning when we're recording this, It is part two, the long-awaited, long-requested part two of our conversation with Detective Tom Lang, 25 years after, more than 25 years after, the O.J. Simpson saga captivated America for more than a year. And on part one, Detective Lang and I talked about the night in question in June of 1994, when Nicole Brown and her friend Ronald Goldman were brutally murdered outside of Nicole's condo. And we went through the details of that night with Detective Lang, who was a principal in the investigation. He was one of the two lead investigators, he along with his partner, Detective Philip Van Adder. They were the the people charged with putting together the details as they could see them using their powers of deductive reasoning and investigation skills to say, here is what we believe happened at this place at this time. And of course, that led to O.J. Simpson becoming a suspect and ultimately going on trial after being accused of these murders. But before we got to the court case... The single most odd moment of this entire saga, and I believe the moment that brought this to the attention of the rest of the country, took place on Friday, June 17th of 1994. And that was the day where we all saw OJ in a white Ford Bronco going down the freeway in California and what has been dubbed the slow speed chase. Remember that? 
It's interesting because I remember where I was the night that that whole thing took place. It was a, as I said earlier, a Friday evening, and it was right in the middle of the NBA Finals between the Houston Rockets and the New York Knicks. In fact, I think they were playing a game in Madison Square Garden. I was watching the game when there was a split screen. Bob Costas was the studio host for NBC at the time, and they break in to talk about this car chase with O.J. Simpson, and that was really the first time that I was made aware that Simpson was involved in anything. I I guess I, I had missed the fact that he had been accused of murdering his ex-wife, and I think there was some reference to it, and it was kind of in passing, didn't really pay that much attention to it. At the time, Simpson was working as a studio analyst, and at times, and on site reporter for NBC Sports during their coverage of the NFL. And it was that night as Tom Brokaw is talking through what was going on. We are learning these details of this things of this thing. And you are becoming aware of an OJ Simpson that you did not know. Now, since part one of our discussion with Detective Lang, Simpson <laughs> as you know, is out of prison and is now out on Twitter. I said that to you some time ago, that it, wouldn't, it would not be long before he would be on Twitter. Apparently, that's where you go when you want to create controversy, Twitter. So let's talk about Friday, June 17th, 1994. What was the backstory? What are the behind-the-scenes details And the perspective of Detective Lang is so important because in the very covered slow speed chase that has been dramatized and covered in countless news documentaries and reenactments, as Simpson is in the backseat of the Bronco with his friend Al Cowlings driving the Bronco, he is in a conversation with an LAPD detective and that man is Detective Lang. So this entire saga has a completely different backstory. And Tom Lang has that story. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. Executone of Louisiana has been helping businesses in Baton Rouge save money on their telecommunications for over 40 years. Executone will help businesses upgrade their phones and intercom systems, save money, and never have to worry about local customer support. Doctors' offices, hospitals, schools, businesses, it doesn't matter. All kind have depended on the good people at Executone to upgrade technology and save money. I have a question for you. Do you like saving money? Sure, of course you do. Here's another one.
doing? Do you want to keep the most up-to-date phone and intercom technology while saving money? That's what it's all about. That's a no-brainer. Don't get sucked in by out-of-town companies who are not here if you need technical support. Executone has been here, and they believe in the value of customer service, baby. Don't take my word for it. Give them a call, 225-295-3500. That's 295-3500. Oh, look them up. ExecutoneLA.com. Executone of Louisiana. They still here, and they're going to continue to give you great service. This is the Clay Young Show. Back with retired Los Angeles Police Department Detective Tom Lang for the long-awaited part two of our conversation about the saga that really, as I mentioned earlier, brought this O.J. Simpson mess to the public of the country. First up, Detective Lang, how are you, my friend? Not doing bad, Clay. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. You're getting around. People have been excited to get you back on and hear this story, man. Glad to hear it. Glad to see it. They're glad to tell it. All right. So uh, Detective Lang is also one of the authors of the books, a book, Evidence Dismissed. It is a great read. I told you that on part one. And in Evidence Dismissed, it really gives an account, a clear, granular, detailed account of what happened, including this quote-unquote, slow-speed chase. So let's get to the details. On Friday, June 17th of 1994, at about 8.30 a.m. in California, O.J. Simpson's attorney at the time, the, the titular head of the Dream Team, if you will, Robert Shapiro, receives a call from the LAPD informing him that Simpson needed to surrender. At 9.30, Shapiro goes to, at the time what was an undisclosed location. We later learned it was the home of Bob Kardashian, one of Simpson's friends at the time. At 11 a.m., Simpson is scheduled to surrender. Now, it's a long jump between 8.30 and 11 a.m., but sometime shortly after noon, according to Shapiro, uh, the lawyer receives a call from the LAPD telling him that Simpson must, that the LAPD must announce that Simpson is a fugitive. Shapiro gives police directions to where the house is. They arrive at the house in San Fernando Valley. Uh, Shapiro is there with Simpson's doctors and some other people in a room at the house, and he announces to the police that Simpson wasn't there. He apparently had left with his school, uh, school-aged friend, college teammate, Al Collings. They leave in a Ford Bronco. At 1.50 p.m., LAPD Commander David Gascon announces to a room filled with reporters what we would later learn would be the beginning, the opening really stage of what would be a circus. And here is audio from that press conference. Mr. Simpson, in agreement with his attorney, was scheduled to surrender this morning to the Los Angeles Police Department. Initially, that was 11 o'clock. It then became 11.45. Mr. Simpson has not appeared. The Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. Commander Gascon, didn't you have a tail on the suspect all the time? Were you watching him constantly? We're uh, not going to make any comments relative to the investigative efforts itself. 
or anything else surrounding what has occurred since the beginning of the case. Through, you asked the question. Would you like for me to answer? We have spoken to Mr. Shapiro. We have expressed our dismay, and uh, we have indicated to him that uh, that we expect to see Mr. Simpson immediately, if not sooner. So Commander Gascon is addressing the media who, as you could hear, they're kind of in a in a in, in an intense state about what's going on. So let's roll forward to 2 p.m. Police respond to a 911 call at the scene of the slayings after a man identified as Nicole Simpson's father comes out of the house asking people to call 911. This is according to the LA Times. At 3 p.m., an LAPD officer at Nicole Brown Simpson's condominium tells reporters O.J. Simpson isn't there. District Attorney Gil Garcetti at a news conference says anyone helping Simpson to flee will be prosecuted as a felon. Quote, we will find Mr. Simpson and bring him to justice. At 4.45 p.m., police issue an arrest warrant for Al Cowlings. At 5 p.m., Shapiro holds a press conference during which his friend, Simpson's friend, Robert Kardashian, reads a letter from Simpson. At 5.51 p.m., Simpson reportedly makes a 911 call from a cellular phone in his Ford Bronco. His location is traced to the Santa Ana 5 Freeway in Orange County near Lake Forest. At 5.56 p.m., the slow speed chase begins. 7.30, after moving uh, onto the freeway, the, the 91 freeway, the Bronco turns north on the San Diego 405 freeway in Torrance. At 7.57, Simpson and Cowlings arrive at Simpson's Brentwood home and negotiations for his surrender begin. Detective Lang, what did I leave out? Boy, you did a pretty good job. It's an outstanding overview. However, does anyone to know who read the book or has any more information? There's a whole lot more and, in between uh, that occurred. That is that is and, perfectly that is a perfect setup to where we are going because that is basically an elementary layout of what happened that right. day. But you have the full details, so let's go back to the morning uh, before eight thirty when Shapiro is informed that Simpson needs to surrender. He needs to turn himself in. Take us through that. Uh, the first thing I want to say before is that Phil and I, my partner at the time, Phil Van Adder, we wanted to go out and pick Simpson up. We did not want a, a dog and pony. Anytime you have a high-profile case, you're going you're gonna to have little problems. You're going to pop up, and anything can go sideways at any time. And in, in this case, we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's a lot easier when you have somebody and you're dealing with their attorney to just go out and pick them up and bring them in and book them. But the brass overruled this. They wanted the dog and pony show. And we just kind of knew in the back of our minds that something was going to happen. We didn't know what, never expected this. But it would have been so much easier just to deal with Shapiro. And I'd been doing it. I'd been on the phone with him. If we could have just gone to some place somewhere, pick Simpson up, come on in and book him. But no, that powers to be had other ideas and so the end result was this circus we saw play itself out uh, all afternoon and into the evening so i was at the district attorney's office and i talked to shapiro uh everything was set for him to turn himself in unbeknownst to us they were all out as you said 
correctly at Kardashian's house. AC had shown up, AC Cowlings. He was talking to uh, to Simpson. Uh, Simpson was being looked at by a couple of doctors and being photographed different parts of his body. And hairs were being plucked from his body, and the wound on his uh, left hand was being observed and photographed. And was, uh, other folks were talking to him, and at one point he just kind of disappeared. And I had called Shapiro, who was at Kardashian's house, and he said, just give me a little more time. You know how he is. He's bigger than I am, this kind of nonsense from from Shapiro. Of course, Bob, uh, uh, we, we did refer to Bob by his initials, which are BS, throughout this whole thing. <laughs> and it, it held true. <clears throat> but he was just kind of stalling. And so the last call was, you know, he's gone. We don't know where he is. Uh, this type of nonsense, and of course Phil and I are looking at one another and saying, this could have been so easy without all of this nonsense, we'd have just worked it out, went out and picked him up, brought him on in, Uh, but of course that that, that didn't happen. Uh, Now everything has changed. uh, This is only day five after this occurred. We're inundated with all sorts of so-called clues, People calling in. We've got people running here, people running there. We're getting these so-called clues, these mini-investigations. They're all possible leads. So we're sending people everywhere. And everything is just kind of turned upside down. So I walk into the office, and it's Bedlam. The brass is down there, and all of a sudden I hear, look, he's on television, and we have a TV up in the corner of the RHD office up there, and all of a sudden we see Simpson, uh, Simpson and the Bronco apparently with uh, AC Cowlings uh, tooling up the freeway, and it's just like time has stopped. I mean, what do we do now? Uh, everybody's looking at each other. What's going to happen? We got all these these cops behind them. The Orange County sheriffs are in the slow speed pursuit. It's obvious that the Bronco isn't trying to get away. I mean, it's super slow, 30, 40 miles down the freeway. It's just crawling in L.A. So we know they're not trying to get get away. What are they trying to do? Nobody really knew. Nobody knew what to do. Where are they going? What's going to happen next? And then, of course, then a wrench gets thrown right in the middle of everything. One of the Orange County sheriffs sees Simpson with a gun and puts the gun up in the window to his head. And that changed everything from that moment on. So let's let's unpack that from the beginning of the morning as you describe it and up until where you stopped. You started by saying it was your intention and Detective Van Adder's intention intention to just go pick the guy up so that you could avoid all of this. Why weren't you allowed to do that? Well, I think it's a big high profile case in the media. Uh, screaming and hollering. I think the the department wanted to put on a little show and taking advantage. Perhaps they looked at it as some kind of a PR ploy. Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, But this is just something, you know, we we work for somebody. We follow orders like everybody else. We're not independent contractors or anything else. We've got to do what they want to do. And there's no time to sit down and argue about these things and uh, we have our opinions, and uh, uh, we do what we do through experience. We learn things through experience by 
trial and error, and in this case, like as in any high-profile case, makes much more sense to us to go out and pick up the person without the media because we, you know, this isn't a performance for anybody. This is a law enforcement activity. We should be allowed to go out and and make the arrest. We have a legal warrant. Bring them in and go through the process and let the brass play this out uh, any way that they want, but we're not interested in that, and they are. However, they outrank us, and so we have to go along with this, and uh, this, this, it's, it's all nonsense. But uh, this is what can happen under these circumstances, because you don't know what's in the suspect's mind. And now we've got this guy out there with AC. Uh, we, the good part of news is we found him. The bad news is he's got a gun to his head. So what do you do next? So you mentioned after you weren't allowed to pick him up that you're in conversation with Shapiro about it. And Shapiro says, hey, I can't get him to do it, you know, do anything. He's bigger than me and all that BS. Do you believe the people in that house knew he left or that he was going to leave? Because I'm trying to figure how could they be oblivious to the fact yeah. that he's gone when yeah. he was the center of why all of them were there in the first place? Yeah. At the time, I felt obviously they knew it and probably couldn't do anything about it and took off. But later on, talking to AC, who actually was a down-to-earth, straight kind of a guy, but he would do anything for Simpson, he told us what I believe to be the real story, and I don't believe that most of them knew that Simpson had left when they left. I think they knew shortly thereafter that he did leave, and they knew that he left with AC, but they didn't know where he was going, and frankly, I don't think uh, Simpson knew where they were going at the time. And you say when he's he's in the Bronco, they spot him and they see him with this revolver that he's got and he's holding it to his head. What What is the protocol? Tell me about the way the process works once, A, you have found him, and B, you see that he is armed. Well, the, the, the only protocol is, number one, everything changes. This is a murder suspect, but now he's up the ante when he has a gun. You have to assume that the gun is real. You have to assume that it's loaded, and you have to assume that he will use it. Next question, who will he use it on? Will he use it on himself? Will he use it on AC? Will he start shooting at the cops that are behind him? What is his state of mind? Uh, we don't know any of these things. We have all sorts of people that now that are following behind. Is he going to open fire on these people? Uh, so now the gun moves to position number one. The fact that he's a murder suspect, that, that's not at the top of the list anymore. You have to deal with that gun because, uh, I mean, the price has gone up. So the gun becomes the issue, and now how do we? what do we do? He's not stopping. He's going slow. He's not trying to evade or get away. So just what is he doing? The only way to find out what he's doing is to talk to him, perhaps. Deal with the gun, see if you can get rid of the gun. And, you know, that that's the first thing that, that I'm thinking, but how do we do that? And I'm on the phone with uh, Patty Fairbanks in the DA's office, and we're talking, and she says, uh, you know, we've got his number. And I says, his cell number? And she said, yeah. I said, well, give it to me. So she gives me the cell, and it's, at least we're doing something because everybody is looking at one another. Nobody knows what to do, whether to force, forcibly stop him or what. He's got a gun. You don't want to do that. But now we have a possibility. Now I'm thinking I'm going to dial his number. He's not going to pick up. Well, I dial it, and he picks up. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it, so I just started talking. 
and about him and the gun, and right away the conversation goes to the gun. This couple folks in the office realize that he got a hold of them. One of them runs out and grabs a tape recorder and comes back in and hooks it up while I'm while I'm talking to him. And my only reason reasoning now is to try to get him to put the gun down, or at least put it down, or throw it out the window, or get rid of it. And we're going to try to talk him out of using that weapon until AC, such time as AC decides to stop the stop the car. And so you're on, you get him on the phone. He answers, and he he's telling you that he's not going to hurt anyone else. That he's he, the gun is for him. He's only interested in hurting himself. You he's saying, "quote It's for me. It's not for you guys." And as you are hearing him when he begins to talk back to you, I know that's it's over 25 years ago. But what what are you? Thinking, what are you thinking about him? Uh, whether or not he's suicidal, or this is just a, a plea for attention? What's going through your mind? Well, what's going through my mind? Number one, he sounds very tired. Um, I don't know that he's slept. I don't know if he's under the influence of anything. There'd been rumors that he was uh, taking drugs from time to time. Uh, he's obviously in a state of mind that uh, he's. he's Going to be arrested for the murder of his of his ex-wife and and another man. He he has to know that. It's just just a ploy. It's just for sympathy. Uh, we don't know. You can't take that chance. Though again, guns got to be real. You got to imagine, understand that it is real and it's probably loaded. And so you deal with it from that point of view. So it's all about the gun. And if he wants to feel sorry for himself and whine, then you play it out. You don't try to get a confession out of them or say, listen, you SOB, throw the gun out, or we're going to blow your ass off. You, know, you don't tell them stuff like that. You empathize. You have to empathize, under the, even if it's a game. In the back of my mind, I didn't know whether he's playing us or not. Initially, I don't think Simpson knew what he wanted to do or where he wanted to go. They took off, and, and of course, we don't know what he's got with him other than, other than the gun. Later on, we find out he's got a lot of things like his passport and a lot of cash and several changes of underwear and and a disguise kit and all other sorts of uh, objects with him. Uh, so he took off, and, and maybe he was trying to get down south of the Mexican border and take off. I don't know, but at this point, now he's turned around and they're coming back northbound towards L.A. So, again, it all comes down to the gun, and I will empathize with him. I'll play the game with him. I'll say, hey, too many people love you. Think about your family. Think about this. Think about that. And in the back of my mind, if I'm being played by him, I don't really care because he's got the gun, and the gun is in position number one. That's all our concern is, is that gun and getting rid of the gun. If I can talk with him long enough until they stop or he throws it out, then we can go to the to the second uh, the second area of, uh, you know, maybe talk to him about what happened a little bit more. But it's all about the gun, and the entire conversation has to do with the gun, and he won't discard it. So I just stay with him. And this goes on for quite a while. He goes in and out of various cells, and I'm losing him, and I keep calling back, and he keeps picking up. So and that's telling me that this is good. He's at least talking. You know, if he wants to He's not going to confess to anything in my mind, but at least he's talking. And as long as he talks, nobody's getting shot. So that's I'll, I'll sit there all night and do that if he wants to talk until something else comes up. 
But when he keeps picking up the phone, that's all a good sign. If he doesn't pick up, then we've lost contact, the only contact we've had with this guy. And like I said, this goes on for, for some time, but he tells me that they're heading back towards Rockingham. And so right away, I mean, we've already done this. We've got SWAT en route to that location, and they're flying to get over there ahead of the uh, head of the Bronco to set up just in case. And I will take this just as long and as far as I can with him in this gun situation. And there's like four or five phone calls in and out of cells. And he's heading towards Rockingham. Again, they're not trying to evade. He slows down, and as they're getting off the freeway, we get all these clowns running up to the car and banging on the car. And I'm, I'm talking to him more. I, I said, you know, what's going on out there with these people, this type of thing? And I'm concerned, will he take a shot at one of these people? We don't know. We don't know what his state of mind is. So just keep talking to him to get his mind off of everything else. That's what. That's the only thing I was trying to do. And we take this again all the way to Rockingham. And when we get to Rockingham, the SWAT is already set up. They've got a negotiator in place. The car stops in the driveway, and Jason, the son, runs out, and AC chases him off. Now the concern is, please don't get out of the Bronco with the gun in your hand, because we've got snipers waiting there, and if he points it in the wrong direction, they're going to dump him. It's as simple as that. That's protocol. He's had all this time to get rid of the gun, and he hasn't done it. So I'm praying to God is to just leave the gun in the car when you get out. I want to go back to something you said a second ago and, and just kind of unpack a little bit of, of, of a lot of what you gave us before we move forward. And the first thing is you talked about what he had with him. He had cash with him. He had changes of clothes. He had the gun, obviously, and he had a disguise kit. Now, as a layperson, not, not a law enforcement officer, that sounds to me like somebody who's going to run and which leads me to the thought, well, if you didn't do this, what the hell are you running for? So I, I, am I wrong to assume that that makes him look more guilty, that that's what he has with him in that truck? No, you're not wrong at all. In fact, one of the, the problems with all of this was this was not used as evidence in court. Not only all of the things you mentioned, but there were keys from the Coles condo that he'd stolen from her that we found were actually able to make their, to, uh, to her condo even after the locks had been changed. And the other important thing that you allude to is this, this could have been evidence of a flight instruction. It's uh, in the California uh, Penal Code. There could have been a judge's instruction to the jury on flight. There can be certain assumptions made by the jury under the circumstances that you just mentioned that could be held against him if this were introduced as evidence in court. And again, it's a flight instruction. This, was, this evidence was never used, therefore the flight instruction was never used, and it was just all, all but forgotten during the whole trial. And that's the thing that gets me. It's, it's the way that it points. I, you know, for me, 
if someone accuses me of something that I did not do, I'm going to stand and fight because I think, you know, all you have is your name and your reputation and to be accused not only of killing two people, but one of the people being the mother of his children. He doesn't act like someone, the the depression and the suicide. I mean, for me, it's like, hell no, I didn't do this. What do you mean? Uh, Yeah, I'm coming. I'm going to go, you know, you're going to, you're going to go and face this down because you did not do it. Then you talked about uh, that. He keeps answering the phone, which is interesting because it, it, to me, it, it reflects that he wants to engage with you, that he, he, he wants to talk with you because otherwise, why would he answer the call? I was watching a try looking at a transcript of one, of the the times that he answers and you tell him who you are and he says hey tom how you doing and i'm reading that thinking hey tom how you doing it's like man you're (laughs) you're you got a gun and disguise and all this stuff and you want to exchange pleasantries it just seemed odd tom yeah well it it, it was odd, especially in the light of the fact that i truly believe then as they do now that he's a sociopath uh and that he killed these people, and, and a psychopath also, that he could, that means he could do it again. So now is he just trying to uh, get my sympathies? Is he, is, does he realize that this is being tape recorded and other people are going to be listening to this? Does he realize that this may come up as a, as a situation in court and all this is going to be discussed? Um, but he's, I don't really care at that point. I will later if he dumps the gun, then we can move on to, to, to phase two. But that's the only thing, and then he kept picking up. So regardless of what he's thinking, regardless of whether uh, he's a sociopath or a psychopath or whatever, I don't care. It's just a gun, and get him back into custody, then we'll move on. And like you said, he kept picking up, so that's all good. So he is talking to you as they are moving and meandering through Los Angeles and ultimately on the way back to his Brentwood estate. You referenced also all of the people gathering along the freeway and along these side roads to cheer Simpson on. And and by the time some of them had gotten there, they had brought signs with them. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, that was kind of strange. I mean, it's just... Uh, let me just say this. You know, my late mother, God rest her soul, we probably told about, told you this before, but she always used to say the human race is nothing to be proud of. <laughs> and that's that's what we saw on, displayed all over the freeway. I mean, come on, folks. Uh, do we have nothing else in our lives to do? And this man is accused of slaughtering two young people, not just killing them, but making a point of, of uh, slaughtering them, making this look like a a payback of some type uh but that that's nobody seemed to care about it. it was it was like a show people with cameras and and running and laughing like they're having a party and it's just uh, you know you look at this and you say what the hell is going on with society today you we got to put that out of our out of our lines though and i'm thinking i hope to god that simpson is not crazy enough to shoot one of these morons because then we got a real problem and again that's why we engage him and talk. We talk, we talk, talk about anything. Uh, as long as he keeps that gun away from the window and he doesn't start shooting. So that's, that's what it all came down to and, uh, until he rolls up into his uh, driveway. And, of course, then the drama becomes, will he step out with the gun in hand or not? We don't know. When you were able to deduce, and, and it was clear that he was on his way 
to his to his house. Uh, at that point, you are starting the process of getting the proper law enforcement you know, personnel uh, to his house. So I'm sure you're communicating with people in the room around you as you are still on the phone with Simpson. Take us inside of that room and what was happening there when you were on the phone with him. Well, there were a lot of people around the desk and the brass were there. And every now and again, someone would think of something and write a little note and put it in front of me. <clears throat> as to uh, you know what type of questions to ask while engaging him, and they were all trying to you know be helpful and everything else. And I I read a couple of the notes and I did repeat those. It was uh, somebody would stick a note in there and say uh, uh, you know refer to his mother and uh, uh, the relationship or uh, tell ask him about his kids or do this or do that. And they're all trying to be helpful and uh, trying to listen to this and the the strange part is we're watching this thing on television while we're talking to him and everybody is looking up there and no one knows that this conversation is going on the media doesn't know it uh the, the cops behind him aren't aware of it they don't know that i'm talking nobody knows that i'm talking to him on the phone so they're thinking you know there's a guy with a gun the orange county sheriffs don't know until later that i've actually got contact with him we want them to know that, obviously, so they don't try to do something. Uh, because prior to this, prior to me getting hold of them, of course, AC had actually stopped on the freeway and started to get out and wave people back. And so they weren't. No one was aware that I was actually talking to him, uh, which which made it a little, uh, you know, a little edgy, also. And so, as you say, people are giving you information there and, and referencing his mother. And when you talked about his kids, you reference his kids. You know, you, he, your kids need you. He didn't seem to respond. And he just kind of brushed it off like, you know, they'll be fine. And, and yeah. I'm thinking your kids less than a week ago just had their mother darn near decapitated. And now you're talking about killing yourself. This, this detective is making reference to your kids needing you, and he just brushed it off. Excellent point. And why didn't we see that at trial? Why in the world, not, not to mention all of the physical evidence, but what he said. And he's saying, you know, I admire you guys. You do a good job. You're a good guy, and you guys do a good job. Later on, they tell us, well, we plan evidence. <laughs> we lie. We're it, racist. It's interesting. Why don't you play that part where he says we well, do a good and job the, the, yes. and we're good guys? That's all evidence. And, and the, the point you just made is an excellent one. Why wouldn't you bring that up in trial in front of a jury? Now, whether or not this jury would ever convict this guy, I have my doubts. It doesn't matter. That's not... The, the prosecution's job is to put out all of the evidence. You never have too much evidence in any murder case. All of this should have been put on and never was. That was one of the major faults of that whole uh, presentation by the prosecution. Whether well, or not they'd, they'd convict, that's up to the jury. It's up to us to put on all that evidence. And that was never put on, and that was, that was just a shame. It was terrible. I think if you are trying to 
get him. You, he's not going to take the witness stand. So the most you can do, obviously, is use the evidence and, and, and witnesses that you can find that can speak to the state of mind he was in, in and around the time that he killed these people. But you got you have audio. You have him talking sure. and, and you see his state of mind. And like you said earlier, he was more sympathetic and was more uh, heaping of praise on to the police than he reacted to anything you said to him about his family. Yes. Yeah, no, whether he's playing a game or not, who cares? That's all evidence. Put that stuff on. Put this tape on and let the jury, and not just the jury now that we've got live cameras in the courtroom, let the world hear all of this stuff as it went down during the trial. Why are we talking about this after the trial? This stuff should have been out there. and never was, and that was a huge mistake by the prosecution. But again, in a way, I understand that because it was also LAPD on trial following the Rodney King uh, incident and the riots, horrible riots just prior to this. LAPD was not uh, real popular back then. Uh, Of course, it's never been real popular because many times because of their jobs, sometimes they screw up. I understand that. But this is not, it should have nothing to do with that. We've got a double murder. We have a good suspect. We have everything pointing to him as a suspect. Nothing exculpatory says that anybody else could have done this, which is in and by itself very rare. You put this evidence on, and that's your job. Just do your job. If everybody does their job, you're going to get the outcome that you should get. But that didn't happen. So he gets to his Brentwood estate. It is after dark. There has been some speculation that he waited in the car so long because he wanted the daylight to go away and get out of the car under the cover of darkness. Do you think that's just kind of a a wild speculation or was the time really about trying to convince him to get out of that Bronco? No, I think he's playing it out. Uh, SWAT has had a negotiator there that was able to get a hold of him once they got there. And that negotiator spoke with him for a few minutes. And I think he's just playing it out, playing his hand out. He knows that when he steps out of the car, everything is going to be over. Um, you know, so now he's, it's kind of a control thing now. He's still, in his own mind, perhaps thinks that he's in control. And being the sociopath that he was, he's always had to be in control over any given situation, over any conversation he may be having with someone. And he probably still felt that he had some of that control as long as he's sitting in that, in that, uh, in the Bronco. And of course, the ace of the hole is still a gun. So he's still in control. He's got that gun. He's got inside there, and and he's got a negotiator now talking to him. He knows there's media everywhere. So this is a control thing for him, and he's going to play it out as long as he can. You referenced earlier that a sniper team had gotten in place, and they've got sights on him. And if he gets out with that gun or points that gun in the direction of anyone, they're going to eliminate him. So I am certain that that is intense because of all of the, and you referenced it, the heightened attention being paid to the LAPD. So Cowlings gets out of the car. How ex, Explain the interaction that gets him out of the Bronco and gets him into the house and away from this. Well, the, the cops are there, and they, they couple of them come out, and they tell an AC, come on, you got to get out of the car. This is right after Jason runs out. Of course, Jason was outside the property limits and actually ran through the security and right into the into the driveway and up to the car. 
and uh, to AC, and AC, of course, yelled at him and pushed him back. And the uniform guys, the SWAT guys, grabbed a hold of Jason, and then they talked AC out of getting out of the car. That would be, make most sense to get him out, uh, because that would still he would be, still be a distraction to some extent. They didn't know whether or not AC was armed. I mean, who knows? Uh, AC went off on, on flight. Now, whether you want to think that they had uh, evil intentions or whether they were headed to the border or whatever, you don't know that AC is not armed himself. So that's just another distraction that they had to deal with. So you get AC out of the picture, and now we can deal with, with Simpson. And and that's what happened. Of course, AC is all worked up. He's very emotional at the time also. Explain uh, that. Ex- explain that. that. That's ex- all real stuff. Yeah, huh? explain Explain that. And go back and, and, and give a little more description on something you referenced. I didn't want to let it get by. You mentioned that Jason Simpson ran over to the Bronco. He ran through security and... Cowlings is screaming at him. Why is he screaming at him? What's he screaming at him? He just didn't want him to get away. He didn't want to, uh, AC didn't, in his mind. He didn't want Jason to jump in the middle of this and complicate things. It's not too difficult to realize that you've got cops there, and they've probably got the guns out. And you probably have SWAT there. I mean, this has been going on for over an hour here, and everybody knows he's got a gun, and there's guns involved, and there's cops everywhere. AC doesn't want Jason around there. And Jason is just going to complicate things because he's getting very emotional. So that was AC's thing to, you know, get get Jason, get him out of there, away from the situation. And then, of course, uh, the SWAT guys, uh, again, they want to uh, eliminate AC as a distraction also. So they were working on that. It took a little time, but things, uh, things played out. Now you look back at Simpson, he could have made this real simple. Okay, I'm leaving the gun here. I'm coming out. He didn't have to sit there all that time. But again, he's a sociopath. In his mind, for whatever reason, he's going to have some control, and he's going to keep that control as long as he can. As long as he has that gun, as long as he's in that car, he's controlling the whole situation. And that's what he wanted to do. It it amazes me that this, as intense as it was, ends with n- not an incident. He gets out of the Bronco and he's clutching photographs uh, to his chest and uh, the, the police go over to get him. So he leaves the revolver in the Bronco, correct? Right, yes. And what could you tell us about that? Was it loaded? Was the hammer back? I mean, what? what yeah, what was no, it was loaded. It was a fully loaded uh, revolver, and he just he left it there. It was a real gun. It was loaded, just like we we planned, and we knew that it. You have to consider that it was. You have to consider even if it was a fake weapon, or if it was empty. You don't play that game. You have to believe that this is a real gun and it's loaded and he's going to use it. That's how you play these things out. You don't uh, say, well, maybe it's not real, maybe he isn't going to do anything with it, maybe it's not loaded. You have to make those assumptions. That's why SWAT. And the, the mere fact that he left the gun in the car it tells you that he, you know, he didn't want to get shot, obviously. Right. But, he, but uh, now he knows, he knew that when he came out, unarmed that he'd lost that control right and so he you know kind of like they say fell into the arms of the cops or whatever and they took him on inside and he wanted to uh, sit down and they gave him something to drink and this type of thing 
And, you know, this is a very emotional time, and a lot was going on, but, but now it's over. And so now we all the second-guessing and the finger-pointing, I guess, can begin, as it has been <laughs> for, for 25 years. But it, initially, there's, there's no question about how you're going to handle these things. Right. It was handled exactly the way it should have been. Here is a, a little bit of, of audio from that day. Just let me get to my house. Okay, Please. we're going to do that. I swear to you, I'll give you what I'll you, give you me. I'll give you my whole body. Uh, okay. I just need to get to my house. Okay. okay. We're going to do that. Just throw the gun out the window. We're not going to bother you. We're going to let you go up there. Just throw it out the window. Please, you're scaring everybody. OJ, you there? This yep. is for me. This I, is not to keep you guys away from me. This I know is for that. Me. Nobody's going to hurt this you. This is for me. Okay, it's for you. I know that, but do it this for you. This is for me, for me. I That's know all. that. I know that, but do it for the kids, too, will you? Yeah. Think of your kids. Yeah. Please, just toss it out. You're scaring everybody, man. Uh, I'm not going to hurt anybody. I know you're not going to hurt anybody, but for me. I know I'm you're gonna, not, man. I'm just going to go with me. Please, you're scaring everybody, though. You're scared? Uh, just tell them I'm all sorry. You can tell them later on today and tomorrow that I was sorry. and that I, I'm sorry that I did this to the police department. Listen, I think you should tell them yourself. Uh-huh. And I don't want to have to tell your kids that. Uh, your kids need you. I've already said goodbye to my kids. Listen, no, we're not going to say goodbye to your kids. Oh, you're going yeah. to see them again. Uh-huh. You want to see them again. Please, you're scaring us. You're scaring them. Please, man. Hey, you've been a good guy, too, man. Let Thanks, you, I know you're doing your job. You went I appreciate you right that. from the beginning. Just saying you're doing your job. Listen. You do a good job. Okay, thank you. But there's a lot of people that love you. Don't throw it all away. Uh, Don't throw it all away. I can't take this. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. I can't. You got your whole family out here. Uh, I can't. They love you, man. Don't throw this away. Uh-huh. Don't do this. They love you. Uh-huh. Don't do it, O.J. It's going to work itself out. It's going to work. It's going to work. You're listening to me. I know you. And you're thinking about your kids right now, aren't you? Aren't you? Uh, They're thinking about you. They're thinking about you. Uh, so is your mother. Your mother loves you. Everybody loves you. Don't do this. I know you're thinking. Oh. Man. Just throw it out the window. Uh, and nobody's going to get hurt. I'm the only one that deserves. No, you don't deserve I'm that. Get hurt. You do not deserve to get hurt. You do uh, not deserve to get hurt. Don't do this. All I did was love Nicole. All I did was love her. I understand. I love everybody. I, I tried to show everybody my whole life that I love everybody. We know that. And everybody loves you. Uh, especially your family, your mother, your kids. All of your friends, AC, Uh-oh. everybody does. Don't do this. Just put it down or throw it out the window. Uh, and this will all go away. It's going to be a lot better tomorrow, believe me. Uh, huh? Please. We'll let you go up to the house, but we need you to throw yeah. that out the window. Yeah. We'll let you go up there, but we need you yeah. to throw the gun out the uh, window. Please. AC will take it from me when I get home. What? If you throw it out the window, they're not going to have to do that. Okay. Hello. OJ, you still? That is fascinating. (laughs) He brushes off his kids every time. And in the midst of 
him being in the backseat of a car, which, by the way, I don't know that I could ever recall in the history of mankind that someone has a chauffeur driven suicide drive. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> uh, but 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 it, while you were talking to him, he takes the time to perk up and compliment you and say, you're a good guy. And I know you've only done you've always been good to me. That is it, it's almost like a multi personality thing happening there. Yeah. And what does he mean by he's the only one that deserves it? Would that be nice to hear in court? It would what be. What does he mean by that? Like does he deserve to die? Right. Like, wh- why would you think, if you are an innocent man, that you deserve to have this quote-unquote justice performed on yourself? Why, why do you say, I'm the only one who deserves to get hurt? Yeah. I'm the, I mean, wh- wh- that speaks to the state of mind of someone who feels responsible for something. Well, yeah. It's, it's, you could have all sorts of psychological testimony uh, following that tape in trial, I mean, this, this is this is just to this day. I'm still flabbergasted all these years later. Why in hell the thinking or the lack of thinking that went behind not putting on that evidence? It's just incredible. And so the next phase of this, obviously, is. He has been taken into custody at his home in Brentwood and has now been taken. Was he taken to Parker Center where he was kept or was he taken someplace else? Yeah, we went to, took him to Parker Center and I met him back over at Parker Center. And we booked him in. And he was thrashed. I could tell he was very tired. He hadn't slept in a long time. Uh, later on, uh, blood tests revealed he's probably on the influence of marijuana or something like that. Uh, I believe it was marijuana. And he's, uh, so he just gets booked in regularly, and we spent some time with A.C. Cowlings after that, who uh, I believe was very forthright. There was talk about filing a case on him, and Chris Darden had that for a while, and we decided not to file, which was the right choice. I think uh, it was he did this as a friend. I don't think there was any real intent uh, to do anything harmful to anybody on the part of AC. I think he thought he was just helping a friend. Um, he he gave us a pretty good statement. I asked him. I said, "Well, what do you think? What do you think? Did is OJ involved with this thing? What's your opinion?" And he kind of just dropped his head. And he said, I don't know, he says, you sure got a lot of evidence. Wow. Uh, so this, you know, it all came together. And to me, on uh, the 17th, five days after the murders, this is our case. We just put a stamp on it. And this is all going to come together, and there's going to be other things. Well, as it were, there were many other things that came of evidentiary value, nothing exculpatory, Everything inculpatory. The guy at the airport watching him stuffing things into a into a trash can before he got on the plane to Chicago within an hour after the murders, and all these things came later on. And I'm looking at all of this evidence of the, the evidence of flight and AC and what he's saying, and this is over. But we're still going to play it out. We're going to dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and there's no question that we're going to see all of this in a trial. <laughs> we didn't. That's, and we I, did not see all of this in a trial. We didn't see a lot of things, and that was unfortunate. Well, you you talk about this in the book, and, and you reference 
some conversations that you had with Marsha Clark about some of this in Evidence Dismissed. But as you look back on this specific chapter of this entire thing, the slow speed chase, everything he said that day, what you just revealed to us that Cowlings said when you spoke with him, what what was the reason given for not using these things? There was none. There were a little half-assed type thoughts about this, that, and the other. As an example, the guy at the airport, he sees Simpson taking items out of a small half-moon-shaped travel bag, stuffing them in a trash container. And, of course, this is before the bodies have been discovered or anything else. Then he walks in, he gets on a plane trip to Chicago. This is an hour or two after the murders. Uh, when I brought this guy eight months later, he called me and he told me this story because he thought he was going to be a defense witness. And he watches the trial and things become uh, more evident to him and he calls me. And so uh, this is a good, to me, this is a pretty damn good witness. So I, I get all this information after I've interviewed him and I do a walkthrough of this guy at the airport photographs and everything, and I bring it to Marcia, and her reply is, well, it's, it's, uh, it's a one-on-one situation here. Meaning? I mean, we, we don't have anything to corroborate this. Well, who cares? What <laughs> you corroborated? Wow. This is a guy with a legitimate reason for being there. He's picking up his wife at the airport who works there, and he sees Simpson go through all of this an hour, hour and a half after the murders. Why wouldn't you put him on? Well, it's one-on-one, and, and uh, you know, we... We don't have this or that. And as far as the chase goes, we hear that uh, they called it a mixed bag. Well, we have this, we have that. Perhaps they could use something like this. The defense could use this uh, and turn things around and say, well, he wouldn't, uh, under these circumstances, he wouldn't, if he had murdered his wife, he certainly wouldn't sound like this. And then you put on psychological evidence or some uh, psychological uh, professional would tell you that, uh, this is not indicative of a man who would commit murder. and So you, you don't lay that off on the defense or anybody else. You put this on. This is evidence. Nothing has changed in all these years. And I think back now, I think it's absolutely ridiculous not to put on all this stuff. Well, the, the defense never brought up the Bronco no. chase at all. Not. Because they know that it made him look guilty. In fact, I was watching, re-watching parts of the trial And when the pathologist was testifying for the prosecution about Nicole Brown's injuries and Ronald Goldman's injuries and describing how some of this took place or how the crime took place. And Simpson is there and he's crying. And Cochran at at one point says that this is terribly difficult for him to watch and him being there. And I'm thinking, what a load of crap. It's it's like you beat the hell out of this woman. You hit on her like a heavy bag for years. And again, if you are an innocent person and you are watching this, the emotion that I would feel is anger and disgust. Anger because I could not have done this and disgust in how this woman was slaughtered, not sitting there blubbering like, you know, like a child. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's all part of the uh, part of the act. He's an actor, too, you know, and uh, this is all part of that, that. Uh, you know, a sociopath, Phil Van Adder, my late partner, would always say, uh, is not going to commit uh, suicide when they're in love with themselves. <laughs> and and the, the sociopathic thing never goes away. Uh, there's a lot of sociopaths out there. It doesn't mean they're all serial killers or they're murderers. 
but it does mean some of them have this this, this certain uh, degree that, that tells them they are superior to everybody else and and they can do no wrong and they're all into themselves and and this is who this guy is and if you have to act it out he will and he acted it out there just like he acted out the uh, glove demonstration which was an entirely that was kind of one of those moments in court with the glove and and the way that that whole thing went and we talked about this in previous interviews but for the benefit of people who did not hear that when when ADA Darden decided to have him try on the gloves you know I'm sure you had to be thinking why would you do that? Yeah. Well, I, and I, I don't know. Chris screwed up. He'll tell you that. And when I was down there in New Orleans, we talked again about a lot of those things. And when I saw you down there, and Chris was speaking down there at the Crime Con, and, and it was good. Uh, he, did, he did a really good job putting everything together in his little speech. And he alludes to it. He says, you know, it was a mistake. I screwed up. He didn't think it through. Now, there's ways that that could have been done. Uh, and I didn't realize what was happening because Chris didn't tell anyone except Marcia just before he did it. So no one really knew that this was, was this was going to happen. The easy fix here is let's go back into chambers with all the lawyers, and we'll do it back there. And, and, and what the hell are we doing with latex gloves underneath? Right. These gloves aren't going to fit anybody if you got latex underneath. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Why would you do that? They've already been tested. Why do we need latex underneath? If you're going to do something like this, that that's enough. If, if, if I wanted to do something like that and I wanted it to be out in the public and on live television, I'm going to say, well, we're not going to do it now. If you if you make uh, this man put on latex gloves underneath, because no one's going to fit any of these gloves if you do that. Right. Well, it's 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 so interesting and in going back through the high points of the of the trial and I think what I'm going to do is ask listeners to list some of those points that they would like to have you speak to and we will make that the the third part of this if you are so inclined to join us for another one an interaction between yourself and people by way of questions that they've had about the case and I'll choose the the top several of them and we'll 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 give you an opportunity to to answer it if you're game for that Sure, why not? Sounds fun. Now let's talk about the book Evidence Dismissed for people who uh, don't know about it, who are hearing part two and didn't hear part one. Tell us about that book, why it was written, and why people need to buy the book and read it. Well, initially I didn't want to write the book uh, because it's just, it's it's not me. I was very simplistic in thinking that, hey, here's the evidence. There's no evidence that you got a bunch of bad cops planning evidence or, uh, you know, the, that there's a conspiracy to get after this guy. Everything is clean. Here it is. There's nothing exculpatory. Why do I have to explain to people what I did? They can see for themselves. But I had a publisher and an agent come out from New York and talk me into it, and they said, uh, listen, this is historical 5, 10, 20 years from now. People are going to look at this, and there's going to be a different generation, and they're going to have all sorts of questions. And you're not going to remember everything unless you write all this stuff down. And he was absolutely correct. And he talked me into doing the book. Phil never wanted to do this book either. But he talked me into doing this book, and it was the smartest thing that I ever did, listening to this agent uh, writing this book, because now I look back at the the book, and I said, everything is there. I, I... just as strong, if not stronger today, than it was 25 years ago. 
So a couple of years ago, I did a fourth edition on the book, and we got it out on Amazon now, and I, and I did a postscript. And I did a, uh, after 19 years, my take on a lot of the evidence and a lot of the players and everything else and uh, in this postscript, and I brought kind of the reader up to date on what had happened over the last 19 or 20 years, and a lot of personal thoughts went into that that I wanted to do. And now I look at this thing, and I said, uh, boy, if I hadn't written this thing, I'd have made one of the biggest mistakes I made in my entire career if we had not written this book. So I'm very happy with that book. We still get good ratings. I got one the other day. This thing is we wrote this initially in 97, the postscript and uh, a couple of years ago and some guy uh, uh, did a review on the book uh, just the other day this last week after 25 years we're still getting reviews and he says this is one of the best simpson books that i've read because of the objectivity and they laid out all of these details now people with this new generation wouldn't know anything about this they'd be dependent on other books written by people who had nothing to do with the case and they had no idea what went on throughout this case, and that would be all that they had to depend on. And this is a historical case, and this is what really happened. If we hadn't written that book, it would be people buying into supposition and nonsense, and in some cases, just out and out lies. It, have Have you seen anything done on television? Because over the last three or four years there have been a lot of things from the fx series to the espn 30 for 30 documentary have you seen anyone get it right in terms of dramatization or a documentary no and that's because everybody's trying a different angle why not just talk about what happened plain and simple talk about the evidence talk about what happened with it you know and i i fine we want to sell books but we didn't believe me. If I'd have stayed on the job two more years, I would have made more money than I did on that book. But this, the book was written to tell the truth of what really happened. I feel stronger today than I ever have about it. All of the facts are in there because we're the ones that handled the case. Not some uh, Jeffrey Tubin or, or Johnny Cochran from the defense side or, or this uh, lawyer or that lawyer or some uh, dodo head on, uh, on television. This is what really happened. And if we hadn't written this book, the real story never would have been known. These, uh, the FX series and the other ones, they had their agendas. Uh, and the, 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 uh, the uh, series, the one series, was a joke. The one with Cuba Gooding Jr. I mean, none of that was... They factually, was in, in, it, was, it didn't happen. One of the, the blaring mistakes, I mean, we just talked about the, the uh, so-called slow-speed pursuit... They had me talking to A.C. Cowlings. Right. And it, it just a simple little thing like that. All they had to do was read our book, and I say that today. They, they asking these simplistic questions, just read the book. That's because right. Because throughout this trial, I kept the log, 450-plus pages. I added two, three, four pages every day of different anecdotal things that occurred, what really happened. And I see some of these things... Uh, uh, reenacted on television, and it's laughable. None of it. It's just not factual. 
Yeah, and and I, I've told a bunch of people about it. I've had friends buy the book. And in fact, uh, the district attorney here, as I told you, heard the podcast and he bought the book and read it and, and talked about how well done it was. There's so many details in there that you never heard before. That was the main thing for me, the things that I never knew before about the case. And the way that it's laid out, it's very linear. You see uh, what was happening that night based upon what you and Detective Van Adder and others had had surmised all the way through this. And Evidence Dismissed is the perfect title because, folks, there are truckloads of details that I'm sure you do not know, and you can know it if you buy the book. You are right. (laughs) So, Detective Lang, I appreciate it. So we're going to we're going to we're going to put it out to the public to give us their best questions about the investigation and the trial. And then we will make part three an interaction with you and the good questions. I'm I'm interested in seeing what people will ask. But my my really suggestion to people is to go out and buy the book because you will learn some things and maybe the book will answer your questions before you get to ask. And we can ask the detective to just kind of expound on some of those details and he's agreed to do it so tom i appreciate it my friend sounds good clay thank you promote your business or organization on podcast 225.com podcast 225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for louisiana listeners every month thousands hear the weekly clay young show every week clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Clay Young here with John Conroy, the founder and owner of Pestop, your do-it-yourself pest control solution. Listen, I know everybody's buying stuff for the mosquitoes now from Pestop, but there's another culprit that you need to deal with, and that is spiders. Ooh, yeah. Let's talk about it. Let's do, because there's very few things on the market that are effective on spiders. Right. Because there's only a very small part of the anatomy that actually comes in contact with anything, and that would be the bottom of the feet. When they walk across a doorway. Exactly right. And most molecules dry so tight, Uh they're not affected. They just walk right over it. With the exception of one that we have. Okay. And it, the way the, the molecules dry on it, they kind of crystallize. So if the spider crawls across it, it attaches to the bottom of their feet. Spiders are self-groomers. So as they groom themselves, they ingest it, and it lights out within a short period of time. So where can I find your showroom in the New Orleans area? Well, in Metairie, we're at 3512 Severn Avenue next to the Pepper Mill. In Covington, we're at 1417 North Highway 190. That's in the same shopping center as Sherwin-Williams and Villery Floors. And on the West Bank, we're on the Palco just past the Harvey Bridge. Okay, and what about if I'm in the Capital City? Region. Well, in Baton Rouge, we're located at 806 O'Neill Lane. That's about a block south of Old Hammond Highway. Or if you have questions, just give us a call at 273-4788. This is the Clay Young Show. Man, that was interesting, wasn't it? Detective Lang can remember those details so many years later. And it's, look, it's... I don't get anything out of you buying the book, and and for the record, I bought mine, but I can tell you, if you really want to know about what happened in this O.J. Simpson saga, you have to buy that book. It is a really, really good read. Take my word for it, and if you've got questions on the other side of that about something that they missed, then you're better than me because they covered a heck of a lot of detail in that thing. And so I recommend the book Evidence Dismissed. And you can get it on Amazon. 
Uh, it's not terribly expensive, and it's a great read. And it's it's really, in my opinion, the definitive detailing of what happened back in 1994 and what happened going through the trial. And as I said, with Detective Lang, we will put a question out on social media on a couple of platforms, giving you the opportunity to ask questions about the O.J. Simpson trial and the investigation. And you can hear from really one of the point people in this, the one of the two lead investigators. All right. So thanks again for Detective Lang being on with us and, and sharing with us. And I'm looking forward to part three. So I referenced in the open of the show that I would have a brief comment about what's been going on in Baton Rouge vis-a-vis the press conference by the police chief last week as we record this edition of the show and him uh, talking about, he with his attorneys talking about the termination of a BRPD officer and the subsequent retirement of that officer, the resignation of that officer and everything that went on back in June, uh, July rather, of 2016. And the chief's comments have been praised by some, criticized by others. Lots of people in the law enforcement community have been angry at what the chief has said. I have heard from some that have applauded him for what he did. And the emotions about this both ways, are very, very strong. There is even a racial connotation to this based upon how people have been responding. And there is also a context being created of pro and anti-law enforcement. And now we see that the family of Alton Sterling is going to be suing, and they referenced the police chief's comments in their press conference, actually saying that he said things at his press conference that they did not know about former officer Salamone. Now, I've been around a long time and have been invested in this community for a long time. And there are a few things that I know in context to all of this. One is that the Baton Rouge Police Department is a fine agency. And like any agency, it is not infallible or perfect. There is no no industry, no organization that can boast that accolade. I also know that there is great value in poor communities and that just because a person is poor, it doesn't mean that he or she is bound to be a criminal. Those are facts. You can't, that's, those are obvious statements, both on both sides of this. I have friends in the Baton Rouge Police Department. I also have friends who do a lot of work in the inner city and people that I have touched in the inner city and, and have worked with and volunteered with because I do believe in giving back and trying to help people put themselves in position to pull themselves out of a tough situation. I, especially some of these young black men who are really in tough spots for various reasons, far too many to go into uh, in the end of a show. The union president, 
Brian Taylor. It's a friend of mine. So having relationships with all of these circles of people, my own personal one man perspective is this. I don't think the chief meant any disrespect toward the men and women of the Baton Rouge Police Department. I don't believe the chief was trying to sully the reputation of the agency. Conversely, the union has to do what they did in defending former officer Salamone. It's just the way that that whole thing works. And a fight is coming between the union and the police chief and possibly his command staff. And this kind of fight has been brewing for probably 30 years. And some of you know what I mean, this kind of confrontation. Here is my hope about that. That the men involved in all of this can sit and talk like men and agree to disagree on some things and hell, yell, scream, whatever you want to do, agree to disagree on some things. But at the end of this, stand up, shake hands like men and remember their responsibilities to the people of this community. To the provocateurs on both sides on the outside. I got nothing for you, so I have no comment. But it is my hope that the principals involved in this can find a way to sit and talk and create a way forward that doesn't feed this bad energy and negativity that's in the air. Now, again, I've got friends all over this whole thing, and I'm about solutions. And arguments rarely create solutions. Discussions do. (laughs) And the true nature of a compromise is when both sides... Walk away not getting everything they want. And here's hoping that we are good enough and that the the men involved are grown enough to try to get this done. And I hope they can. The city needs it. And with that, I will say no more on that subject. Thank you for listening to the show. You can find me on Facebook forward slash Clay Young on Twitter at Clay Young BR on the gram Clay underscore Young BR. And you can always email me. That email address is Clay at podcast two two five dot com. You guys have a great one. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Clay Young Show.